You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Ezekiel 37, be reading verses 15 through 28. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah, the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another into one stick, so that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it with the stick of Judah And make them one stick, that they may become one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel." And one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall, have, they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, how great your salvation that saves us from our sin, and how great our sin that thinks your salvation a small thing, so much smaller than it really is, 
So as we look at this promise of the new covenant and all that has come to its fullness in Christ that's now ours, help us to grasp something of the height and depth and length and breadth of the magnitude, the scope of our salvation. That we are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise, but everything that was held out in shadow and type is ours in fullness in Christ. In whose name we ask this, amen. In chapter 33 of Ezekiel, this destined, determined, but dismal and devastating word comes to the prophet. The city has been struck down. Chapter 33, verse 21. The city of David, Jerusalem, Zion. The city where God made His name to dwell among His people. Has been struck down. It is left in ruins. And then in chapter 34... A major shift takes place in the book. You shift from the bad news to the good news. Bad news has been predicted. The bad news has come. And now good news is predicted. But the situation is dire. It's seemingly hopeless. The abysmal state of the nation has just been captured in a vision by the prophet where he saw the people as a valley of dry bones, very dry bones. And Yahweh asked Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? From the dust and ashes of Jerusalem, from the scattered people of Israel, from the humiliated kings, can Israel rise again? The people of Israel are saying, verse 11, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. You have to understand whenever they would say something like our bones are dried up, the idea is that they have died, they've been placed in a tomb, and then the tomb was revisited much later to gather up the bones and put them in the common box of past dead descendants whenever those bones are very dry. Our bones are dried up. The nation is dead. But Ezekiel, knowing with whom he speaks, when asked... Can these bones live? Responds, O Lord Yahweh, you know. If there is to be life, it will require a resurrection. It will require the mighty hand of God. It will require new creation. And so everything is determined upon God's mercy and grace and might. Can these dead bones live? And at the command of God, Through the preached word, by the Spirit, the bones in this vision come together. And then sinews, and then flesh, and then skin cover them. And breath enters into them. 
and they live and they stand an exceeding great army. And then from this vision of resurrection, the prophet is given an image of reunification. Ezekiel's commanded to perform a sign act to introduce, to make vivid his next word of surprising grace. And it's a simple act. It's the kind you'd expect to see in a children's Sunday school class. It's nowhere near as showy as the brick that he was commanded to engrave Jerusalem on and then play war with, building siege works against it. And I believe that coincides with the next command. I think he did that for an extended period of time as he was told to for 390 days lay on your left side. For some period of time during each day, lay on his side. And then after that, for 40 days, lay on his right side. I think at the same time in front of this siege work against Jerusalem model that he's built. And this was to symbolize, to speak of the destruction come against first the southern kingdom and then the northern kingdom. It's nowhere near as shocking, so it's not as showy as that, and it's not as shocking as that during those 390 days he was told to fix a very specific diet and cook it over cow's dung. No, For this lesson, Ezekiel will need just two props, two sticks. Just to take one stick for each kingdom, one for the northern kingdom of Israel, one for the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's to engrave on the one for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. And so while we read that after the kingdom was split, we read in several instances of migrations of persons faithful and loyal to Yahweh migrating to the southern kingdom. While that's true, dominantly, the idea of of those peoples associated with Judah would be Benjamin, who remained loyal to the house of David, and then Simeon, whose inheritance was scattered throughout Judah, and then those number of Levites that were resident within Judah. The other stick, well, Ezekiel's to write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, so the chief tribe that represents them is Judah with the northern kingdom, Ephraim with the, southern king, with the northern kingdom, Ephraim and all the house of Israel associated with him. So these would be all those northern tribes and all those tribes east of the Jordan that whenever Jeroboam led his revolt against Rehoboam, Solomon's son, sided with him. And then Ezekiel is to hold them in his hand, end to end, so that they appear not two separate sticks, but as one stick, so that prophetically they become one. Now these two kingdoms have been split since the grandson of David. 350 some years the kingdoms have been divided. And then you add that Assyria had destroyed the northern kingdom some 135 years earlier, dooming them 
to virtual erasure as they are assimilated and absorbed by the pagan nations to which they've been scattered. And now, the southern kingdom has just received the seemingly final and fatal death blow from the hand of Babylon, such that they say, our bones are dried up. Jeremiah has captured the state of the kingdom's well chapter 50 and verse 17 when he writes, Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. And Ezekiel is to take these two sticks, representing these two kingdoms, and hold them in his hand as though they were one Stick. There's no magic involved here. Two separate sticks becoming one in Ezekiel's hand, though, is a much more believable miracle than these two kingdoms again becoming one. It's one thing to have a Sunday school illustration. That's simple. It's another thing to have one that is silly, impossible, ridiculous. And I believe that's the way Israel, Judah, would have looked at this message as Ezekiel's presenting it to them. Reunification would be as ridiculous as resurrection. What I want you to see is that the valley of dry bones, as stunning as it is, this image of these two becoming one is no less miraculous and stunning in what's being promised here. It takes the very might of God to do this. The meaning of this sign, it's simple enough. Judah, Israel, joined together. But I think it's the absurdity the ridiculousness of it, the the seeming impossibility of it happening, which leads to them asking, what do you mean by these? It's plain, it's apparent what's meant. Two, one. What do you mean by that? And though the sign is so simple, the explanation is quite elaborate, as you can see in verses 18 through 28. So simple the sign, so profound the significance. It involves much more. This reunification involves much more than reunification. Behind and giving cause to this reunification, we will see our coronation, purification, and reconciliation. What's being promised here? In short, what's being promised is a covenant. It's said to be, verse 26, a covenant of peace, an everlasting covenant. What's being promised is not just a new covenant. What's being promised is the new covenant. So, the language of purification that we're going to see in our text is something that Ezekiel spoke of earlier in these terms, chapter 36. It's identical with this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, 
And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the same thing that Jeremiah speaks of as the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Hebrews 10 makes it plain that that new covenant that Jeremiah spoke of is the very new covenant that we participate in by the blood of Christ. So with a simple act of these two sticks joining them together, the prophet is speaking towards the new covenant. For these two sticks to be joined together, that's the magnitude of what's necessary to bring it about. Yahweh must make a new covenant with His people. Wood glue and grafting will not suffice. A covenant must be cut. Blood must be the bond to make them one again. And that's why this reunification that's being portrayed here portends so much more than just a unity of two kingdoms. What is being promised in this new covenant? Well, first, yes, indeed, reunification. There will be one nation. You see this in verses 19 through 22, verse 25, verse 26. It is God who will take these sticks and make them one so that they're one in His hand. Verse 19. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. So instead of two, there will be one instead of two nations. One nation instead of two kingdoms. One kingdom. Verse 22. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations. And no longer divided into two kingdoms. So it's Yahweh who does this. They become one as they are one in His hand. And with this, they'll no longer be scattered but gathered. Verse 21. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. There's a tangibility, a proximity, a physicality to this oneness. For Israel to be one, and one nation, one kingdom, not just one people, but for them to be one nation, one kingdom, there must be land. That must be a factor in this. And they're gathered back to this land. They've been scattered from the land and they are gathered and brought back to it. Verse 25. 
They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob. What's being recalled there are the promises to the patriarchs. The land is spoken of in regard to the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is being promised in this new covenant? It's everything that was held forth in promise in the Abrahamic covenant now come in fullness. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Genesis 17, 7 through 8. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. So whenever the partial and temporary fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant has seemingly been extinguished. At that moment, the full and eternal promises held out therein reach their brightest manifestation in the Old Testament as they're held forth anew in the promise of the new covenant. What's being promised in this new covenant? Second, Coronation, there will be one king. Verse 22, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. What distinguishes a nation from just a people is not only land, but rule, and thus a ruler. This one stick represents one nation and the manifestation that they are one nation is that they have one king. Indeed, the reason why they are one nation is because they have one king. Such are the grounds of unity Paul puts forward in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This isn't just unity for the sake of unity, there's something binding them together and it is their one king. Because there is one king, there is one kingdom. They all have a king who rules over them and thus they are one. The shepherd himself said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're scattered. I must bring them also. He will gather them and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And this one king, their shepherd, their forever king is David. Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. Verse 25, 
David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Now don't you begin to sense the prophetic depth, the prophetic sense of these words. It's not as if the physical descendants, the 12, very 12 tribes themselves, are going to be gathered any more than it's going to be a literally David himself who rules over them from literally Jerusalem itself and a new temple itself. No, it's not as if less than those things will occur. Something more than all of that. The problem with thinking along those lines is how limited, how small it is. Something of much greater magnitude is being promised. This is a forever David that will rule and reign. And thus it's a forever kingdom. Verse 25. I will set them in the land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. What's being promised in this new covenant? Everything that was held out in the Davidic covenant now come in its fullness. In 2 Samuel 7, David proposes to build a house for Yahweh. And God insists on his counter-proposal. No, I will build your house. And building your house means your son will build me a house as an expression of my building your house, your dynasty. He tells him, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And Solomon was just a shadow. He was not the substance and sum of what was being promised there. David's greater son would be the forever David that's being spoken of here. And so, whenever the partial and temporal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant had seemingly been extinguished, then it is that the eternal and full glories held out therein reached their brightest hope as they are promised in the new covenant. What's being promised in this new covenant? Third, purification. The people will have one heart. Verses 23 and 24, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. The latter part of verse 24, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And for these two kingdoms to be one, there must not just be this work outside of them. There must be a work inside of them. This one king must rule from their hearts so that their hearts are one. The reunification of these kingdoms is not a unity that just centers around unity itself. Let's be one for the sake of oneness. It's a return to where their covenant unity was to lie all along from the very beginning. The most popular scripture 
to the Hebrew would have been the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. If Israel loves Yahweh their God with all their heart, with a singular heart, with a devoted heart, if they love Yahweh with a singular heart, Unity is a foregone conclusion at that point. They're one. The split kingdom betrayed split hearts. And from there, it was just a matter of time. Both kingdoms violated the old covenant. They were driven from the land. But as they are gathered back, they have this promise. Not only will their God save them from sin... He will save them from sinning. The covenant work of God here will work backwards, purifying them. He will cleanse them, verse 23, from all the backslidings in which they have sinned. And we know in light of the new covenant coming into fullness, this means washing and cleansing by the blood of Christ. It means regeneration by the Holy Spirit. It means justification so that the righteousness of Christ is imputed and counted as ours. But not only will the accumulated filth be cleansed, the intrinsic filth will be remade. They'll be reborn. God promises they shall Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, how is this to be? How, how is it that God can say they shall? Ezekiel already gave the answer in chapter 36. Again, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Sinner, know this. The salvation of God that's held out to you in Jesus Christ is not a matter of you doing the law to somehow earn His salvation. It's a salvation that does the law in your heart by grace through faith in Christ. This sprinkling that He speaks of here and the putting of the Spirit within Him are the very image that Jesus draws upon whenever He explains to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit, this cleansing, giving of the Spirit. So with this, God is promising not only regeneration, where we're born again and we're given this new heart, this new life, He's not only promising regeneration, He's promising sanctification so that we become more and more who we are in Christ up unto our glorification. Wherein we are so conformed to His image that we will walk in sin no more and blessedly and perfectly and eternally we shall walk in His rules and be careful to obey His statutes as an expression not of our faithfulness but of His faithfulness in the new covenant to us in Christ. What is being promised in the new covenant? Everything that was held out in promise in the Mosaic Covenant 
come to its fullness. The Mosaic Covenant came as grace upon top of grace. From the beginning it was communicating God's way. was not keep the law and perhaps I will save you. It is I will save you. And then here is my law. Be holy as I am holy for I am your God. Not all national Israel though was true Israel. Not all who participated in the Mosaic Covenant knew the new covenant which it held out in promise and shadow and type. So though it was foretold by Moses immediately in the moment, I know your heart is not one to follow Yahweh and His commands and you will go astray. Yet even so, in the Old Covenant, it was held forth and promised that after they had been scattered, God would gather them and He tells them, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. When the partial and temporal fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant seemed to be extinguished, it is just then, in the promise of the New Covenant, that the full and eternal beauties that are held forth within that covenant, that old covenant, are promised afresh and anew in their most brightest and clearest in the hope of the new covenant. What's being promised in this new covenant? Fourth, reconciliation. Not only will the people have one God, but with that, they will be one with God. There will be union and communion with Him. Verse 23 they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What's being promised in the new covenant? We could simply answer what's being promised in the new covenant is covenant. And what that means is union and communion. Is this not what covenant means with your spouse? Two becoming one, union and communion, knowing one another. What's being promised here? Well, many things. Indeed, everything is being promised here. Everything. How will He not, if He has given us His own Son with Him, give us all things? Everything's being held out here, and yet just this one thing. God Himself. Covenant. Union and communion with our Creator, our Lord, our Redeemer. What is being promised in the new covenant is covenant and the sum and substance of what covenant is is manifest in two pregnant phrases that are repeated throughout this text. The first one, you see in verse 23, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Again in verse 26, 27, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then the second one, Verse 27, my dwelling place shall be with them. Stated differently, verse 26, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. 
Again, verse 28, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And that, that promise pivots you to chapters 40 through 48. Where unfortunately, because we're not reading covenantally, we're not reading in light of God's promises, we too easily get bored. Where the ancient Hebrew, I have no doubt, would have grown ecstatic with such details. It's in verses 40, chapters 40 through 48, where you get that detailed and elaborate description of a new temple. Set in this new Jerusalem, this new city, and a new inheritance of the tribe is described in relation to that new city with the new temple at its center. And this elaborate description climaxes by telling us that the name of that city, from that time on, perpetually, enduring, forever, the name of that city shall be, Yahweh is there. You see how the Hebrew would have seen this? The covenants have failed. Because of our unfaithfulness, the covenants have failed. We've been driven from the land. Abrahamic covenant. Because our hearts are vile. Mosaic covenant. And our king, humiliated. Nothing but a stump left of the grand oak of David. And then they're told that the city of David will once again house the temple of the living God, their Redeemer, and their inheritance described in relation to that. Climaxing with this promise, Yahweh is there. Do you not see that's what's being promised in this promised new covenant is the fullness of every promise that's been held forth in the covenants of promise. It's the way they're spoken of in Ephesians 2, covenants of promise, now ours in Christ. Just when it seems as though all of God's covenants with His people have failed due to Israel's unfaithfulness, God And he makes it plain that it's for the sake of his name and for the knowing of his name. God holds forth the hope of the new covenant. In which everything anticipated by these covenants of promise comes into fullness. See, when these things come to pass, verse 28, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, covenant name of God, who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Whenever God did the new covenant, when He cut it with Christ, following that, the nations began to know He's Yahweh. This is for the knowing of His name, for the vindication of His name, for the glory of His name. Chapter 34 Yahweh promises he will gather his flock back and give them one shepherd, his servant David, and make with them a covenant of peace 
And thus he says, they shall know that I am Yahweh their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord Yahweh. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord Yahweh. They shall know that I am Yahweh. Chapter 36, Yahweh makes it plain that what he is about to do in this new covenant is for the sake of his name. Chapter 32, verses 22 through 23. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate my ho- the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh. You will know I am Yahweh, says in chapter 34. Chapter 36, they, you will know. The nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And then, that's when he goes into these promises about removing that heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. And then just to make it apparent, again, why he's doing what he's doing, it's sandwiched with this statement. Th- chapter 36, verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord Yahweh. Let that be known to you. And then concerning those dry bones, by causing them to live, by causing them to live, God tells Ezekiel, you shall know that I am Yahweh, verse 6. Verse 13, you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it, declares Yahweh. All these covenants come into their fullness so that the covenant name of Yahweh might be known. And they come into their fullness in the new covenant. That name was first explained in some of its significance whenever Moses pled, show me your glory. And God says, I will proclaim to you my name. Yahweh, Yahweh, Exodus 34. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love. And the idea, of, again, of, of that word, that's that word said. It means covenant love is unfailing. Covenant love. Keeping covenant love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But now we begin to understand that that name was first declared in its fullness. Whenever the angel told Joseph, That your betrothed, the Virgin Mary, will conceive. And you shall call his name Jesus. Yahshua. Yahweh saves. You shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Yes, dear saints, I have no doubt if you are 
you're in Christ. If you know Christ, you know that by the blood of Christ, you have reconciliation and forgiveness with God. But God grant us eyes to see something of the magnitude that in the new covenant blood of Christ, we have everything that was held forth in promise in the covenants of promise. You are no longer strangers to them. Whenever God cut the new covenant by the blood of His Lamb, He was bringing all those covenants of promise into their fullness so that they are yours in Christ. Reunification. So that the people of God are one. Under the coronation of their one exalted king. With purification, granting them one heart. And all of this covenant grace for the sake of covenant itself as it were. For reconciliation. That the one God. Well that we might be one with our God. One people in one place with one king and one heart in union and communion with their one God, Yahweh, their triune God, forevermore. That's the scope of God's covenant salvation that you receive in full in Christ. Sinner. That's the magnitude of what's held forth to you in promise. If you would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the magnitude of salvation. Not just cleansing from your sin past. Not just the promise of never sinning again in the future so that you're never defiled again. But an eternity of knowing the Creator in a new creation with a people of singular heart devoted to seeing His glories and excellencies in all things. So it's not just that we would plead with you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might escape an eternal hell. We would plead with you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you grasp something of the eternal glories of heaven that are laid out in the promises, the covenant promises of salvation. Holy Father, grant faith Strengthen the faith of your saints and create faith in the sinner's heart now. All of it in the same promise. The promise of your covenant salvation come to its full glory and magnitude in Christ. Father, I pray this has an enduring impact for your your children, that we would read your Bible covenantally. That we would see the richness and the fullness of how it's all tied into Christ and thus 
We who have Christ, we have it all. That we would look at this world covenantally. That we would see souls knowing that if they are not in union with Christ, they are in union with Adam. That we would be able to forgo the fleeing pleasures of this life. Knowing we've been promised a new earth. That we would not bow before the powers of this world, however awesome and magnificent. We would not put our hope and rest and trust in them. But we would know you have, an, you have a king. And he rules. All things are being placed under his feet. And the last enemy to be placed there will be death. That we would read of your rules and laws. We would look at this world and its darkness and understand that the only reason why there's any distinction between us and them is because you've written that law in our hearts. So that this would move us to compassion and it would move us to do good thanking you, not boasting in self. For the glory of your name. The glory of who you are. As it was revealed to us most brightly. And he who is the radiance of your glory. Your son Jesus Christ. In his name we cry out. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.